Okay, hi everyone and welcome to the Real World Behavioural Science Show. It's been a little bit over a year since I last published an episode, so sorry about that. I have to apologise to you all and I feel like I should probably explain a little bit as well. The short story is that I've not been able to prioritise the recording and cutting of the show, no matter how much I love interviewing wonderful people on the show. Um, the, the longer story is that a couple of significant things have taken all my time up in the last period of time. So number one, Busybody's grew to about three times its size in a six month period. So that was a lot of time and effort required to be able to do that. And in reality, that sort of broke a lot of stuff in the business. We had to fix that. Um, number two, through COVID, we had to prioritize the health and well-being of our teams. So you'll notice that through COVID, we really struggled to get uh, a lot more shows out. So we've already had a little hiatus almost, but um, we're, we're, it's, it's really important to us to make sure that we support our teams through that period and the public that we serve through, our, uh, through, through that period. And then th three, I had some caring responsibilities that I needed to take care of at home. So that happens sometimes. And uh, that's the reasons that we've been um, on hiatus. But the good news is that we're back and we're having a little relaunch of the format. Um, the, the next two shows that we'll be publishing are actually recordings that I did from last year, including this one, which is with Professor Mary Johnston and next month's with Rachel Carey. However, the big news is that I now have a partner in crime, Dr. Tiago Motella. So I'm very pleased to introduce Tiago, Dr. T, Tigger, or any other such nickname we care to give him. So uh, welcome to the show, Tiago. Hello, this is very exciting. Good. Um, well, Tiago is actually working at Busybodies at the moment, and he's our, our head of behavioral science. So I thought I would give him just one minute to give a background and summary of your experience, Dr. T. So hi everyone, uh, I'm very, very excited to be here. I was a, a long, uh, long-term fan of the show. I used to listen to this every day. Um, I have to say this because she was here. So uh, I'm very excited to be here. My, just a bit about myself, my, my background is in health psychology. I've done my academic training. So my master's, my PhD at Aston University in Birmingham. And as Stu said, I've been working closely with him on, on all things behavior science and behavior insights at Busybodies. Uh, my career has been focused around including people's perspectives and first-hand experiences, so being patients, service users, local communities into how we think about healthcare. And my way of thinking about psychology and behavior change comes from the standpoint of the benefits of humanizing research and behavior change. Uh, I've worked in all sorts of projects around community-based approach to designing interventions, evaluating assessing feasibility of all sorts of things uh I, i've got a particular interest into creativity and creativity in my work is, is a big thing i'm very interested in being creative in terms of how we think about research how we speak to people how we generate uh knowledge to, to action insights uh just go a bit beyond the, your standard approaches and I think that's that's a bit about myself. Is that okay? Mm, that's great. Thank you very much. Um, and as I mentioned, Tiago is actually going to be my co-host on the show. I think I've been lacking a co-host, even though I've really <laughs> enjoyed uh, working with and speaking to some really wonderful people. I think having an actual behavioral scientist, because I've, I, as I have said numerous times, I'm not a behavioral scientist. I'm a behavioral enthusiast. Um, uh, having an actual behavioral scientist on the show is just going to help um, to sort of 
strengthen and deepen the way that we can question some some of the people that are coming on um and so we're going to be in the next two shows having a bit of top and tail like this um with with tiago um for, so for, for this interview and for rachel carey's interview but after that then we'll be having tiago on throughout the show uh, as as a co-host um, so Tiago, in that vein, I wondered if we could just start with um, what your main takeaways were from Mary's interview. Um, I have to say, and apologies to everyone, this is going to be way longer than I'm, I'm aiming at. And, and uh, at the end of the show there, uh, there's even a little bit of role reversal uh, where, where uh, Mary interviews me a little bit. And just for the listeners, I'm opening the kimono a little bit because at the end, I sort of let this all run out, even though it was her interviewing me and there was a little bit of sort of you know oh i'm just going to close the show type thing uh, at the end uh, for, with mary but it's a real world show so uh, i thought i would leave it all in tiago what are your main takeaways uh, I, I think first of all uh, for and my background as i said is in health psychology and everyone in health psychology uh, recognizes the work that mary um, has done to the field and i think it was fascinating just to listen to her mind at work and how she thinks about psychology and behavior change I particularly liked the emphasis that she placed on quality and integrity in behavior change and research. And most importantly, something that I truly relate to, and I know you do too, is the usefulness and practicality mm, yeah, of, sure. of research and doing doing things with a purpose and an end goal, not just adding to the pool of knowledge, which is very important, uh, but doing things with a purpose. And I would say that my particular highlight was including Bob the Builder himself into mm. to hmm. thinking about layers of self-efficacy so i think that was my personal highlight of the, of the interview yeah yeah from barack obama to bob the builder it's all included in today's all, show all the big names all, the, all big the big names um yeah i think the other thing i liked about the about um mary's interview was when she termed susan mickey as a bright kiddo um and i'm sure i agree with that, that. that for, for susan mickey this will be a highlight of 2022 so a lovely way to round out the year for her i'll be, I'll be sure to send it on to her um and i have to say that susan and and actually in uh, angel chater and falco Sinata also commented on how instrumental mary was in their careers so um i think it's a really nice way to top off 2022 even though it's the only show i think to come out in 2022 <laughs> so it's a nice way to start and finish 2022 um, so I think we'll we'll kick off now. Thank you for joining uh, Tiago, and I, I I think we'll kick off. Uh, I'm really excited um, to kick off the new show. There's a new website coming from the BSPHN. BSPHN has also become a charity uh, recently as well, and so there's been a lot going on with them. So this will coincide with the, the launch of their new website. It's no longer a member organisation in the sense that anyone can go and um, be part of the BSPHN. They always could, but you now don't have to pay to be a part. Uh, so you can get all of the benefits of being part of the NHS BSPHM without joining uh, now. And then lastly, I think uh, I'm excited to get this show going again in the new year with new guests. And we will be sending out a list of the people that we're going to be interviewing in 2023, uh, Tiago and I. So in the meantime, I'll crack on and I'll introduce this show. But I really, really am looking forward to real world behavioral science in 2023. Um, so Professor Mary Johnson is a registered health and clinical psychologist and she is also the Professor Emeritus of Health Psychology at the University of Aberdeen. She's a fellow of the Royal Society of Edinburgh, the Academy of Medical Sciences, the Academy of Learned Societies for the Social Sciences, the Royal College of Physicians of Edinburgh and Honorary Fellow of the British Psychological Society, European Health Psychology Society and the Health Psychology and Public Health Network. Wow. I have to take a little breath there after uh, all of those uh, fellowships and, and uh, associations. 
Mary conducts research on behaviour change in health and healthcare context and on disability in both theory, measurement and intervention. In 1986, she became the first chair of the health psychology section of the BPS and in 1992, the second president of the European Health Psychology Society. She served on numerous BPS committees and in 1994 gained the BPS President's Award. Her previous posts were at the University of St Andrews, London University and Oxford University, having completed her BSc at the University of Aberdeen and PhD at the University of Hull. Another accolade that she hasn't listed, but I'm just adding personally, is that she is just thoroughly lovely to talk to and absolutely, it was a joyous experience spending time talking to her. And that's really the reason that I was unable to cap it an hour. Um, but without any further ado, over to the show. Okay, Mary, welcome to the show. Nice to see you, Sue. Yeah, thank you for coming on. Um, uh, Mary, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about your journey to where you are now? I think I'd better tell you where I am now before I tell you about my journey. Yes, okay, yeah, let's, let's uh, start there and then go back. So I'm emeritus. That means that I'm connected with the university. I do research, but importantly, I don't get paid by the university and they have no controls over me. And there are lots of things that they won't allow me to do, but mostly they're to do with fill, filling in forms. So I'm with a, a very intellectually and rather, and intellectually rich, but administratively very thrifty stage in my life. Great. Uh, and sometimes, I, but I just, I choose what I want to do. And money's not an issue to, that makes me have to decide. It's, yeah. it's a very luxurious stage of life, yes. Okay, and how did you get to this stage, this this uh, luxurious stage of your life? Well, I think all of my academic career, I've had an idea of kind of values. The values are about um, doing good, intellectually valid, high quality research or um, work based on good evidence mm -hmm. and work that had practical implications. So at a very early stage in my career, I had to make the choice between going into what I thought was the intellectually exciting bit of psychology or the bit that might be useful. I found that a really hard decision, went to really real conferences about it, uh, but when it came down to it, I wasn't prepared to do something that I couldn't come home and say to my mother, this is what I do. Uh, and right. the, the intellectually interesting bit of psychology at that time was a developing theory of memory, and it was all based on nonsense syllables. Can you imagine coming home and telling your mother, I'm looking at how people learn nonsense syllables? Nah, I'm not really work. sure I even un understood what what a nonsense syllable was, to be honest. Well, instead of learning, so to, to getting people to remember things, and instead of having words that have meaning for people, the, non mm. the nonsense syllables were things that were, had no meaning for anybody. So you could be pure memory. It was all very oh, I pure. see what you mean. Right, right, right. Anyway, I, I that was you. what I decided not to do. So Yeah, because um, otherwise you'd have that conversation quite a lot, yeah. <laughs> explaining what nonsense syllables were. <laughs> I think that that part of psychology has moved on really well, and it's been mm. the basis of understanding uh, uh, neuropsychological deficits and all of that. So I think it it has eventually been useful, but it's still an area of work where uh, what it does is describes the, the deficits rather than enables people to fix the deficits and i'm rather right. more on the fixing problems than identifying problems side of things yeah yeah so what i did do was i did a phd on delinquency uh, 
and I developed quite a, a complex theoretical model of how delinquency develops. I got bored during my PhD. I couldn't understand what all the fuss was about. So I left when I'd completed the um, residential requirements and went to work in a uh, an institution for kids who'd come from the courts, where I was totally horrified by what they actually did there and decided that academia was less blue sky than this institution uh, because they didn't really treat the boys well and they certainly didn't help. So then I, my next move, um, I was prepared to do anything that was going to be useful. And at that time, uh, we've moved from Bristol to Oxford for my husband Derek's job because we alternate on who we move for. And uh, <laughs> in this job came up where they wanted a, a, a low-level research assistant to work on this project. And when I went along, they said, but you should be employing this person. Anyway, the project was about evaluating community hospitals. And uh, it was an interesting thing where it wasn't clear who was interviewing who, but I had I said I had two criteria for whether or not I would take this job. One was that we would use the best best methodology, i.e. that we would be, use random allocation of people to the two different conditions. Mm -hmm. And the other was that it had to influence government policy. <laughs> okay. uh, I think that's the kind of thing you say when you're at that stage in your career. But yeah. can I just say that, that they're still my two values, that it should be the best possible research and it should be useful. Yeah. So then I moved from delinquency to working on uh, things in hospitals and it became but uh, but I took with me all the kind of behavioral science from delinquency and delinquency is all about changing behavior yeah, yeah. Um, and so um, I came into uh, healthcare with a sort of idea of uh, this is about changing behavior and what people do and so could we um, so I began to develop measures of outcomes of patients stay in hospital that were to do with measuring behavior mm. and measuring disability and that interest in disability has been with me all my life so that right. uh, disability is one of the uh, kind of neglected areas when people come into um, looking at healthcare they, they tend to look at the more flashy end of it the, the surgery and so on and I was involved mm. in that for quite a while but I, I thought disability was a more needy end and so I it, then it still is, to be honest. Yeah, like yeah. It's, it's still a really underserved area of health, isn't it? Yeah, and it's it's still uh, one one of my I would always put it as one of my main research areas. Mm -hmm. So I I did all the work on anxiety and surgical patients and preparing people for surgery and all that. Um, but then I always had this thing about uh, measuring what people do when they are um, disabled by a clinical condition. And since then, I've gone on to develop uh, theoretical models of how you integrate the um, biological and the behavioral aspects of disability in understanding what people do. So when people mm -hmm. are dis disabled uh, by a, a, a condition that impairs them, it isn't the impairment that predicts what they do. No. It is a combination of their impairment and all of the things that we know as psychologists predict how people choose and do what they do. So we've done a lot of studies in which we've shown that uh, really self-efficacy and intentions may be more important in predicting what someone with an impairment does than the nature of the impairment itself. And uh, the environment, do you find that the environment they find themselves in also has a big impact? Like their environment can be quite enabling or disabling? Oh, I, 
that's that's really interesting because I have not actually worked on on the environment because I I don't think I'm an expert on that, but mm-hmm. it is certainly something that I am socially interested in, so that um, I you know when I'm interviewed about disability I, I usually mention what's wrong with the environment, um, and I've. Uh, in my life, we've modified houses three times, and three times we've had arguments with architects about making uh, buildings accessible to anyone with limitations. And they, they say things like, oh, yes, because there are disabled people in society. And I reply, no, I want to be able to have my friends here. I don't want to discriminate against my friends who are disabled. And in any case, by the time I get to 70, there's a very large probability that I will be disabled. Disabled people are not them out there. They are me in my future and they're my friends. And I think that that identity of environments being for them and not for us is is actually reflected in some of the words that we use. So that I think I was less aware of what we did in English until I saw it in Spanish as, you know, where they put these parking places for minus validus. And I thought that was horrific. Until I looked at, they say minus valid. We say invalid, invalid, invalid. The words we use are, so I'm slightly more on that kind of social psychological end of uh, understanding disability than on um, the environment, but the, the things go together. And I'm also interested in the social environment. What does the person that you're uh, in, in, in a household with do? Do they enable you or do they sympathize? And yeah. how do they balance those two things? And psychology's got a lot to say about that, I think. Um, yeah, and we've certainly got research that shows that if uh, the person you live with believes you can do it, you'll do better. Yeah, yeah. So that's not just your own self-efficacy, that's the other person's belief in your efficacy. Uh, is that, is it, does that tend towards the Pygmalion effect a little bit there of, of sort of setting up a uh, an almost a self-fulfilling prophecy that if someone thinks you can, you you just sort of go along with it? And that's, that, that is, of course, uh, an important part of self-efficacy because um, Bandura, who has just died... I know, I just saw that. Um, he, he's proposed that there were four ways of enhancing self-efficacy. Um, obviously, mastery experiences seeing other people doing well, um, f- feeling in your body that it's right, but also other people persuading you that you can. Yeah. And these are very strong messages. Um, you know, the, the, the Obama message, yes, we can. The, the Cuban message to enable people to learn and to always see Podemos, yes, we can. Uh, mm-hmm. These are very shared, powerful. shared by Bob the Builder, of course, as well. Don't forget, speaking <laughs> posit- of positivity, he's but it's not just positivity, it's not saying the world will be beautiful. And mm. uh, so, there's positivity that's not self efficacy. Self efficacy is um, believing that you have uh, the skills and ability to achieve uh, the goals that you're setting and to mm. engage in the behaviors you want to engage in. Uh, it's not just saying the future will be beautiful, it's saying you can do it. Uh, I never saw Bob the Builder, but I'm sure he stole it from somebody else. I didn't either. I just, <laughs> I just know the song because it's quite annoying. <laughs> and, uh, I think my nephew used to watch it or something. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, where, where this took me was I was in the research project in Oxford for a number of years, and then um, the other thing that happened then was I, I got involved in the practical issues of disability and had the opportunity to work in a, an almost clinical situation with people with disabilities. And mm-hmm. that really attracted me. But I was still on research money. And 
um, they uh, they actually the health service generated the money to employ me out of the research project, and I was all set to do that when the the um, the Oxford area was just opening up the major new hospital, the John Radcliffe. Mm-hmm. And so they withdrew all money for new posts. So that post was gone. And I had to decide what I wanted to do next. And for some years, I had been doing lectures to the uh, people who were training as public health physicians. Yeah. Uh, it was probably the, f- the first public health training program in the country. And they roped me in and I regularly taught them about attitudes and behavior and things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I then went to the Royal Free as a lecturer, uh, teaching psychology to medical students. And I, I loved that because uh, later in my life, I was teaching psychology students. And I realized that I, I didn't really quite know what the psychology degree was for, but I knew what a medical degree was for. So I yeah. knew what I was training people to know and do. And people always complained about medical students. And I never did. I thought they were clever and it was up to us to engage them in what we had to say. Mm. And we had such a lot to say that was of relevance to them. Yeah. Uh, and we ended up being very well supported at the Royal Free. And we, at the Royal Free, we, um, we managed to bring together the clinical and the academic side. This is over years. And um, that, that was really successful. And we did some really groundbreaking stuff. So... Uh, while people were still involved in talking about mental illness in a sort of uh, stigmatizing way, we developed a stress management clinic. I think we were the first in the country. And mm. um, the people were happy to uh, come there to have a resolution of issues in a way that they wouldn't have gone to a psychiatry or a mental illness clinic. Yeah, yeah. But the language and all of that has moved on such a lot, hasn't it? Um, yeah, it has, yeah. I'm talking about the 80s. Uh, where people were just coming out of the the Valium um, proliferation, uh, so that teaching people skills rather than giving them pellets seemed a good idea. Um, yeah. The other thing that happened then was that uh, we a massive number of staff got referred to the clinic, and that was that was a revelation for us. So that got us involved in staff behaviours and uh, enabling staff. Um, and while all of this is going on, I realise that I'm not, I'm not just straightforward. I, I do the clinical psychology diploma because I think it might, uh, I might not get to do the jobs I want to do if I haven't got the ticket. But really, I'm not interested in the mental health end of things. I'm interested in the the, the, the health psychology end of things. I.e., more broadly, it doesn't have to be a problem, uh, a, a, a mental health problem. There are behavioural things that we can do to help. Um, and I then discover that there's a, a task force in America talking about health psychology, and I join that. And that eventually leads on to me working with people in Europe to develop the European Health Psychology Society. Mm-hmm. And in the UK, uh, just setting up uh, what then becomes the Division of Health Psychology. So th- these were major things that I was doing in the in 1980s, which uh, occupied me fully. Yeah. Well, it's quite a lot of stuff. So, yeah. I mean, and that's still 30 years ago, so or 40 years ago, or 30 to 40 years a ago. Lot. So, so you've, you've still got another whole half a career to go here. So what, how, how, what else were you doing since then? Right, so... Um, Influencing a lot of people, by the way. I know that much because everyone keeps I talking know. to me about you. Well, uh, I always think, what have I done? And then I think, well, my goodness, there's health psychology in the UK. 
And it's quite interesting how people, if you're introduced at a, to give a talk, uh, you, you learn what people value you for. Mm. And I have two favorites. One was when I was interviewed, uh, introduced as, uh, you know, they, they say you do all this publication and research, and they said, uh, and they added and that I had managed to keep health psychology in the UK on a scientific foundation. I thought, well, that's wow. no mean feat. And then the other one I liked was, this was in Northern Ireland, and I was introduced as, she does all this academic stuff, but maybe more important is that she um, uh, looks after the junior people and takes an interest in what they do. And mm. can I just say, these are these are the two biggest compliments I've had in my life. They're brilliant. Uh, so I, I love that. So the, how do I go from the Royal Free uh, uh, to where I am now? What happens is uh, things happening in our private life um, made me think, when we started this conversation about when we retire, we'll go back to Scotland. And then we thought, that's a stupid argument. If you want to go back to Scotland, you go now. And that's mm. that's about identity and speaking to people who speak the way that I do and all of those things. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So then we thought, well, we could live in Scotland and commute to London. What's the problem with that? And in mm. the mean, while we were in the business of doing that, um, we uh, someone came along and said, there's this job in St Andrews for a, a lecturer. But this time I was a reader. And I thought, hmm, can you apply for a lecturer post as a reader? Anyway, I did, uh, and they appointed me as a reader. I said, as in, a reader is slightly higher than a lecturer. Oh, and yeah. So yeah. You, can you apply to go to be a lecturer if you've already gone up a bit? Yeah, because it, no. looks, it looks as if you're dosing, doesn't it? Yes, yeah, okay, fine. With so I, I wrote this letter that said, um, uh, would, you, would you consider making an appointment at a higher level? In fact, when they interviewed, they only interviewed people for a radar position. Another thing they couldn't do nowadays. Right. Uh, so if it was advertised as lecture, and nobody was interviewed for a lecture post. We were, we were all interviewed for um, the, the reader or higher post. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was really interesting. for That put me back with my own discipline. And I do like the people in my own discipline. Uh, but I actually like the contact with medicine. So then I had lots of contact. We had lots of wonderful research projects in St. Andrews and in Dundee. And that was where I really got to grips with disability and started a long program of research on uh, enabling with people with stroke to do more. Uh, and so we, we did a lot of um, uh, predictive studies then. And we did some intervention studies and then we developed um, a major intervention uh, stroke workbook, which was eventually implemented as part of uh, healthcare policy in Scotland a few years mm-hmm. ago. Um, so it, and it's one of these things that's on the books as that's, you know, it was launched by government and all of that. Yeah. But then you wonder if any of it actually happens. Uh, right, right, yeah. But, but, but it was a whole program of research that really went well. Um, and it got me back into my own discipline a bit. Um, but St Andrews is a, was, um, I spent a lot of my time outside St Andrews while working in St Andrews, uh, because St Andrews is quite a small place mm. with lots of small place advantages and disadvantages. Yeah. So there came a point um, when this was a definite career choice. I, I made a decision I had to make a change and I wanted to do something that was more connected with being useful. So that was when I came to Aberdeen, yeah. because then, now I'm connected with medicine and with um, 
psychology, so I, I had a half and half post. Uh, the other thing that happened in the 1990s, I got a call out of the blue uh, from uh, one of the lead researchers on implementation science, saying he he would. This is Jeremy Grimshaw had uh, been told by Grant Awards that he needed a behavioural scientist, and somebody said he should phone me. So we then went on to do a massive amount of research on implementation. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is the, this is the behaviour of health professionals in my context. Um, so I'm still working on behaviour. Uh, so on the one hand, I'm working on the, the behaviour of people who've got uh, disabling conditions. On the other hand, I'm working on the behaviour of people who are implementing uh, evidence and practice as health professionals. And by this time, uh, health psych- I, I suppose I'm, in the 1990s, I'm president of the European Health Psychology Society. So that was pretty occupying at that time because it wasn't a society that it wasn't fixed. It was something we had to develop. We had to set up all the constitution and all of that stuff. So that was all fairly busy. Um, I mean, and you're still in the 90s at this point. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, (laughs) So so, so what happens after that? Um, I need to make more. I need to make a note of making more time for emeritus professors uh, for their career We we actually (laughs) come to Aberdeen in 2003. Right, okay. Uh, and that that was a good move. So that's a move that's partly about the the better academic context, because St Andrews didn't have a medical school or any. It didn't have any department that was connected with delivering something in reality. Yeah, yeah. And and so at that time, I was actually looking at a job in Stirling when Aberdeen said, "Come here." So uh, that suited me very well because it had both the the academic, the high quality academia and the application and usefulness to medicine. Um, bring us up to date then. How, how did you, um, where did you finish your paid career um, before you went into the emeritus? So I was half and half psychology and um, medicine. Uh, and in medicine, I was connected with the health services research unit and I did mm-hmm. lots of research with them. So the big things that I work on now are with Susan Mickey. I've worked with Susan Mickey since it must be the early 80s. Susan maybe told you how, how she, long ago. She mentioned you in her in her interview and said that you... That's been you, fabulous for me. She yeah. said that you said something like, well, come on then, what are you going to do in your research career or vice versa? Oh, yeah. It was either that yeah. she wasn't doing research or she wasn't doing something pragmatic and you, you said, well, come on. Yeah. Well, oh, <laughs> Susan was somebody that she was in clinical psychology and I thought, hmm, we need her in our research effort because you know mm. she's a, a bright kiddo, and uh, well, I think uh, that's an understatement. <laughs> <laughs> a bit yeah. a bright kiddo, yeah. yeah. Well, I I could see she was a bright kiddo then, and yeah, uh, yeah. Uh, so she was part of what we did at the Royal Free with health psychology, and she was part of what took the stress management clinic into the, the staff work, work and all of that. Um, so. So majorly, I work with her, and all of the work we've done on um, trying to translate behavioural science to make it usable with um, the, the TDF we started working on together, the behaviour change techniques, and now the um, human behaviour change project. We're very much shared projects, mm-hmm. and the interesting thing is that by the time we were working on that, I was much further on in my career. And I think it was very easy for me to say, no, Susan, you have to be first author on all of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, because 
I was very aware that if she didn't, so some of the things she was thinking that the research fellow would be the first author, like the behaviour change techniques. I thought, yeah. you've got to be first author because you've got to go out and promote it. Mm. Um, and so the two, the two of us have worked really well together. Um, yeah. I, th I think we're quite a good partnership. If I rabbit on too too much, Susan just say moving on, and on we go. <laughs> I think she's she's retained that. She did that to me in this show <laughs> sometimes. <laughs> um, but that is actually, Mary. That's something that people have said before. I, I interviewed um, Angel Chater and uh, Falco Sniotta uh -huh. probably a couple of months ago or last month maybe, um, and and they mentioned you as well in in being important in in their career in you know helping. Mm -hmm them develop so what what is it about helping people develop that you love so much uh, I, I, it's a generality it's not just in my research career so that um uh, i've had uh, someone who cleaned my house that i've persuaded and supported through uh, doing a college training as well i just mm. like to see people doing well mm, and mm. i I don't like to see talent wasted, and I don't like to see people frustrated by not being able to achieve their goals. Um, and also, I think that if people do these things, it'll be a better society because we've got more um, competent people delivering for society. Uh, and also, I just think some people have some great ideas, and I just like to see them pursuing them. Mm. And what I don't want is everybody to end up as clones of everybody else. I want to see all the talents. And there's a terrible trap in academia that the only thing that's valued and successful is having a, a five-star paper. Mm. Well, no, I'm afraid not. A five-star paper that doesn't have any influence on society is not really of great interest to me. Mm. Uh, so, or, or any readers either. <laughs> you know, that yeah. it doesn't, doesn't guarantee readership, does no, it? No. Um, a good, so, good quality paper. Uh, so I don't know if you know that I got the Division of Health Psychology Mentoring Award this year. I, I didn't know chuffed. that, but that's not a surprise to me. I'm so chuffed. That's just wonderful. Because um, uh, as I said to somebody in response, the word mentor is very close to the word tormentor. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of don't let people go, and I, I think that must be a problem if you work with me. I kind of pursue you and make sure that you're doing all right and getting on with stuff <laughs> well I, I think that's great and I, I i have to say i share the impulse not to the extent that you've you've um oh. probably implemented it but uh, you know one of the reasons i love running busybodies for example is that i love I, it's literally it's written down as part of my value system of of um liking seeing people achieve things they didn't know they could um and yeah, trying to sort of yeah. challenge them yeah um so that they do sort of have the support to be able to to do it but that actually you know, going back to Brandura a little bit in building their self-efficacy, building yeah. that situation-specific confidence to be able to try things and, and succeed and then translate that, that efficacy. And there's two bits to the Brandura. One is mm. about the self-efficacy and the other is about having a goal and what the outcome expectancies are that you're trying to achieve. Mm. And I think both are important. So yeah, yeah. you're trying to get people to achieve the goals that they value rather than getting trapped into society, the common values, the, the believing that your five-star paper is the goal. Yeah, uh, I think that's really, really important. And, and I think we see a lot of that and you must do as well, because we see a lot of that because we have quite a lot of early start sort of um, early career people come into the company yeah. and they're they're full of the weight of expectation of what they think is 
uh, important in the industry like if they come from nutrition for example yeah they, they have a very fixed mindset about what is important and they very quickly realize that if you're working with families you're working with people on, on changing behavior what you know about nutrition is limited in its value okay. versus how you how you understand you know social context relationships yeah. conflict those types of things my, my nephew's a, a dietitian and he um he said to me i think it's all about behavior so we had him we brought him up to the research group so he was with the research group for a short time mm. and uh, um i don't know what the influences are here but uh last year he got his phd in psychological and physiological processes and uh, dietary behaviors in obese people with diabetes oh right what's his name george <laughs> Tom, and he's okay. just become uh joined the public health department in dundee as um uh, I don't know what his job is, but it is, it's to do with prevention and diabetes. Yeah. Um, Mary, can, can I move you on to, to the um, how behaviour change? Because this is about, you've talked a lot about um, really what this show is about, which is about translating academic um, behavioural science theory into real world yeah, application. Yeah. That's why this is called real world behavioural science for that yeah. very reason. Um, because I, I, my, in my own journey, seen a lot of really interesting academic theories not really yeah. work in the real yeah, world. Yeah, and yeah, so yeah. It's, it's been a passion of mine for, for since I started working in this area. Um, so what is your take on how well we are doing that generally? How, how well is academia being translated and how translatable is it, in fact, into like, you know, public health, into medicine, however, whichever field you, you, you're sort of more interested in? Um, I think it's a gradual creep. I think um, I think we've had quite a lot of difficulty in persuading people that what they're interested in is behaviour. Mm -hmm. because it's called everything else under the sun uh, yeah. and uh, there's a way in which people oddly psychology has been very poor at studying behavior uh, we published a paper a long time ago whatever happened to behavior uh, right. because we and uh, part of the project with Susan now is developing an ontology of behavior um, yes yeah. so I think that there's been a problem on our side and saying what it is and a problem on the other side and realizing that what they're interested in is behavior. So, you know, it's called smoking, it's called diet, it's called adherence, it's called all of those other things. Mm -hmm. And so if you keep them in separate boxes, there's no way in which you can have the overriding uh, thing that uh, it's people's thoughts and moods uh, that will influence what their behaviors are, whatever yeah. the domain of behavior. And so um, I didn't mention that um, Diane Dixon and I uh, were seconded to the Scottish Government uh, Health Improvement Division. And we very early worked out that what psychologists would typically do would go in and say, criticise what they do. Whereas that is, well, once you start criticising, you're basically antagonising who you're talking to apart from anything else. But you're not building. And usually what they're doing is something that's quite good, it's just not as good as what we would want. So we worked out that what you've got to do is say um, that's that, that that's good what you're doing. There's a, these additional things you could do, mm -hmm. um, and so I think there's there's a way in which we conduct our discipline that's not good for helping people to pick it up, because we're so busy squabbling amongst each other that we can't agree what's worth handing over. So do you think? 
I'm just trying to think about where that's applied because there's behavioural insights teams now that are yeah. popping up, for example, in public health teams and in yeah. private companies and in, in DH places like that. Uh, and and there's a whole sort of new breed of, of, of role, I suppose, in, in those organisations where they are, there is some level of recognition that yeah. what's been done in the past has, has been focused on things like what we would call common sense or whatever but actually when you when you apply uh, behavioral science to those not all of those hold true anymore in fact many of them many of them don't do you think that that there's that's like just the basic level at which we can be influencing policy and practice um with a, a basic set of of tools and skills and actually there's a whole heap more stuff that we haven't done then given what you're saying or or is that actually being done effectively at this point I think it's all kind of progress towards a common goal. Um, right. You hear people criticising that approach, and I think that's part of the just the way that psychology, we've just been trained to criticise rather than to identify what's good in things. Right. Uh, whereas I think that they are doing uh, some good stuff and they're progressing it and they're making people understand that behaviour is important in a whole lot of areas. So I, I do think that's of immense value. Um, I, I, when you come to COVID, I think that's been really interesting how people have talked about that. Um, so that, you know, I think the virologists will get a, a massive credibility for the number of lives they've saved. Whereas for a whole nine months, there was a massive number of lives that were saved by behaviour change. Mm. And nobody's totted up that number of lives. And you can tot it up because it was behaviour change from... Um, March in the UK from earlier months in other countries um, and behaviour change saved lives and I don't see that in headlines but I think vaccines save lives. You see the opposite in fact sometimes I mean uh, Susan mm. was telling me on the show uh, a few months ago about getting well death threats lots of un, un sort of you know unkind oh, yeah. Um, yeah. communications but also I saw something recently on Twitter where she had been uh, in some way lambasted on like Good Morning Britain or something like that. It might not have been that just for, as a disclaimer, but it was, it was one of the morning shows where her personal life had been brought into, uh, her personal views on socialism, et cetera, had been brought into to, mm. to this. And people saying, you're not a virologist and you're not an epidemiologist, therefore you should shut up and keep your views to yourself about what we should do. You're not a scientist. And obviously being from this field, I didn't agree with all of that stuff. But if anything, not only has the behaviour change not been properly, I don't think, recognised, it's actually gone the other way and been demonised by some um, in the popular media, I think. Have you seen any of that stuff? Yeah, I think there are some people who enjoy being critical. Mm. And, I mean, that's a whole psychology of its own. I, 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 why do people criticise is it to do with enabling them to be less critical of themselves or to build their own identity? Is it so that uh, they get a, a following of people who think, oh, that's a cute thing to have said? Uh, so, I, I, I mean, I assume that behaviour has its own rewards. Um, yeah. So you think it's motivated by something other than their pure opinion on the matter? Yeah, because we have lots of opinions, but expressing them is a behaviour that requires some kind of uh, behavioural yeah. science to explain why you do that behaviour. Um, yeah, I said that that behaviour must bring them some kind of uh, 
a release or a reward in their current environment. Uh, you know, it's just a behavior that, like any other, it can be explained by the same phenomena. And um, I, so for example, I'm sure that some people build their self-efficacy by contrasting what they do with what other people do. Yeah. I am, I, I am a more competent person than that other person because I have said they are bad in that way. Mm-hmm. Um, the other thing is there is um, there's really quite good evidence that being negative like that about other people uh, adds to your own unhappiness because you're focusing on negative stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think way back 1990 there was a paper about other blame making people unhappy. And does uh, that 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 I, I I think one of the first things I became really interested in behavioral science through was um the positive psychology moving that sort of martin seligman um uh positive psychology uh, discipline um does that play into that do you think i i I certainly found that it was very interesting in terms of the 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 concepts at least i I certainly think it's related to that but the positive psychology is not necessarily i mean that that's a whole thing in itself i think it's more directed at the less tangible outcomes of mood and quality of life more than behavior change Mm. i'm not really so aware of it in a public health domain beyond that it isn't used in a public health domain it was just uh, there was a a particular public health is massively about behavior yeah yeah for sure um but in our the reason I was interested is is because we were delivering public health program in, interventions directly to to people, and so that had a there's public health at different levels, isn't there? Some of which is at the sort of the population level, some of which is subpopulations, yeah. and there's the individuals. Still, yeah. public health work technically, uh, but it's more intervention work, and I think it it fit nicely into that. It's, it's one of the reasons that I was really interested in this actually, because I saw all of the stuff that was in positive psychology. And looked at all of the classic psychological theories and and because i was doing a master at the time and, and i thought none of these adequately describe what i'm seeing in the real world they all have some contribution yeah. to make but you can't just pick a theory and say right well let's use that theory and that's it then and we'll, we'll, we'll design an intervention around it which is why bcts for example are a really interesting concept because yeah. that you you can flex the type of intervention for example when we design interventions and we've we've behaviorally coded all of our interventions using bcts and combi and tdf and um without knowing it what we had what we what we recognized when we sort of stepped back from the coding because we we sort of noted the number of things that were um number of bcts that were that made up each of the sessions in a in a given intervention you start with quite basic things that were around giving information about sort of you know up what i would call on the left hand side of the um the bcts or the earlier numbers and you end up if you're developing i think an effective intervention at more identity-based um statements identity-based um intervention components because those are the those are the things where longevity lives for for our from our perspective when you're changing someone's behavior particularly in obesity physical activity diet you know it's if you're someone who does something, it's different to being someone who's trying to do something or whatever. And yeah, yeah we, we just naturally found by you know, a lot of the stuff we do, we're yeah, the other, the other thing yeah. about choosing BCTs as in our, in our work with Scottish government, we became aware that uh, people are very good at thinking about how to motivate people, making people want to do it. Yeah. And they're very good at thinking about how you make a plan of how you should do it, slightly mm-hmm. less good. What they're not good at, not good at at all, 
so if you look at psychological theory, if you, if you look at the wealth of theories we have, there are lots of theories that explain the motivation to behave in a reflective, um, I can never remember which is system one and system two sense, so that you're right. thinking about it. So Strachan Deutsch is the way I think about it, so that one is reflective and the other is just associative and you don't have to think and it's not effortful and it's very quick. And if you look at the reflective processes, half of them uh, theories are to do with making people want to do it. The second half is about making people do what they want to do. So with my colleague, Diane Dixon, we've developed the, um, oh, this was part of the work with Scottish government, the map of the route to behavior change. And the map has three routes, M for motivation, A for action regulation, and P for prompts and uh, cues and when people typically try to change behavior they spend a lot of time on motivation even on people who are motivated mm. they will then spend quite a lot of time on action control but that's quite difficult when they could be using prompts and cues which are a bit more like nudging yeah uh, when we explained it to the, the people in government we described it as an intention bypass that you didn't have to think you wanted to do it you didn't have to plan to do it you just find yourself doing it because the environment makes you do it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and so the the map has been implemented quite widely um, in Scotland. And for example, uh, a major project by Wendy Maltinsky and Vivian Swanson um, trained all the people involved in diabetes care in Scotland to use the map because it's a way of on the spot thinking, what what do you do? When you're talking about planning your interventions as a team, you've got time to stand back and think widely. If you have a client in front of you, or a person in front of you that you want to change their behavior, or your dog, or your whatever, how do you decide what kind of behavior change technique you want? And if the person's already motivated, the number of times I've seen people who are already motivated being subject to things that are motivating. Yeah. Yeah. The, the big it's the go-to, isn't it? Motivation. The big the big trial that we did way back was of um, uh, when I was working on professional behaviour. We were working on dentists implementing guidelines, and if we were going to do a trial to get the dentists to do to to be more frequently placing fissure sealants on young children's teeth. That was the that was what the guidelines said. And my dentist colleagues said that, uh, right, we just need to give them more education. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think we were dealing with people who might have been quite motivated. So why would you do that? So I challenged that. And I said, I thought we needed to do something with more like a reward structure. And dentists work on um, you know, pay for a piece of work. So we introduced, a, we had a trial in which we pitched, we had a control group a group who got education and a group who got financial rewards for placing the fissure sealants. Mm -hmm. And only the rewards had an effect. The education had absolutely zilch effect. It didn't even um, make the rewards more effective. And when we, um, this, this is a public health triumph. When we um, reported the results, we had a, a launch event to uh, report the results. Uh, the chief dental officer said, I will implement that on Monday. Well, that's it. that meets your criteria. It's got to be useful and yeah. it's got to influence policy. Yeah. But the interesting thing is that talking with the dentists as we went along, I said, you know, a lot of this research is based on work with rats in Skinner boxes. 
And the dentist said, we don't mind as long as it works. <laughs> I thought that well, was really uh, lovely. Yeah, I think that's great. <laughs> and and, and that, that brings me back to something I talk about all the time, which is you shouldn't be snobby about where good ideas come from. Like wh wherever good ideas come from, if they work, they work. The um, best ideas will always come from the animal research because they're not bogged down in people talking about what they think influences their behavior. Because the yeah. rats don't say, I'm influenced to uh, press that bar because there's a pellet coming. Yeah. Whereas human beings have so many explanations for their behavior. I mean, that's why I'm sort of dubious about things like getting too tied up with the TDF, because that's always asking people, what do you think is the explanation for your behavior or somebody else's behavior, yeah. rather than an empirical investigation of what actually influences behavior. The best influencing of behavior comes from the work with the, the non-speakers in the world. Or, or indirect, uh, or... or less direct observation of real world events yeah. where you're like, I remember once we had a we were running a, a brides program weight management program for brides and um, we were piloting okay. it and I said to the girl who's running it uh, Katie I said when we were going to give it to them for free because it was a pilot but I, I wanted to see what their the difference between saying they would pay for it versus oh, yeah. actually asking them to pay for it so yeah. we said we're going to give it to you half price it's 600 pounds. We're going to give it to you for 300. I said, the question you have to ask is, how would you like to pay? Don't ask them, would you pay that for this? Uh -huh. And because we're all so poor at like, you know, the, the commercial side of this, we're yeah, all yeah. public health, pu public servants, <laughs> first and foremost. She couldn't even get it out of her mouth. She was going, uh, uh, I, I can probably, I can probably get some disc. I, I think we're going to give it to you for free anyway, but would you pay? Like, you know, and I was like, you completely bungled that. We now don't have the information because when when you ask uh -huh. how would you like to pay, Absolutely. that's a different. It's a different. Robert part West. Of the brain. Robert yeah. West says you don't ask people do you want to give up smoking. You ask them what what's your quit date. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. a different. It's a different question altogether. Engages and a completely different. That that is that is bypassing the whole intention bit. Yeah. yeah. All this reflective stuff you can wallow in for hours, and as psychologists we do tend to wallow in it. And we yeah. tend to do these correlational studies that wallow in it, rather than getting down to proper behaviour change. Yeah, we we actually call that the habit before the habit. So we we do an experimentation thing, and then we sort of look at all of the the things that you can build into your environment, socially or physical or yeah, whatever, yeah. to just say, put what can you do right now to to make it more likely for those things are in place to try and sort of default you to those, those where are you want to those are prompts and cues. Yeah. Uh, yeah, they're not to do with building motivation. No, uh, no, no, no. They're, they're not to do with building this skill to control your action. They're to do with making no. you do it at the time. Yeah. It's, it's that trigger, the, 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 yeah, the, the prompt. prompt. Um, yeah, prompt. But we prompt call it the, the habit before the habit. Yeah. 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 Uh, it's, it's just easy for people to get their head around when it's like that. You just They think about, well, it's just trying to take it out of the cognitive sphere altogether almost really and just, just, just we've, we've build been an looking, environment. We've been looking at uh, the habit issue with respect to... Um, uh, the COVID transmission reducing behaviours, the face mm -hmm. covering, the hand washing and all of that. Yeah. And uh, we've probably got the best data on this in that we've got uh, representative samples of the Scottish population um, a large number of the weeks of 2020. And at one point we studied the extent to which the behaviours would become habitual. And we wanted to look at how the reflective processes are the wanting to do it, intending to do it, the action control processes like self-efficacy and planning and remembering uh, and not forgetting built into habit. So what you find is that intention predicts behavior, self-efficacy predicts behavior, 
Um, but both of them are supplemented by planning, by action control. And also that planning um, has an effect on behavior that is partly due to developing a habit. So if you plan it can, and do it, you plan and do it regularly, it becomes mm -hmm. habitual. Mm -hmm. And that's how habits are built, by doing something regularly. Uh, and so for both physical distancing and hand washing, uh, the, the phrase is people have planned and become habitual by planning. They plan to become habitual mm -hmm. and it's a come in behavior. It's not so clear on face covering. Face covering is just, it may be because of the time during which we were investigating, investigating it. People were, uh, it was only mandated in June, so it was a bit late. Uh, people acquired the habit a bit later. Yeah. So that during the period we were investigating it, it was becoming more of a habit. Um, but the the other things, you can plan to be habitual. I think it's a great phrase. It which wasn't wasn't my phrase. It's Sebastian Pohov's phrase. I think it's a great phrase. I I have to say with with hand washing particularly, this is my own experience and interpretation of it. So um, feel free to shoot it down. Um, but automatic motivation has been probably the biggest factor for me in. Um, hand washing and sanitizing because if I've touched things when I'm out, I mean I've rarely gone out but if I have and I've touched doors or whatever like I was in a, I was actually in London yesterday and I went to the toilet and when I came out I had to touch the door to open it and whatever and I'm super aware of that now and and it's like until I've sanitized my hand afterwards I haven't got a compulsion or anything but until I've sanitized my hand afterwards I have this sort of disgust reaction yeah, yeah, almost yeah. where where it's driving me quite strongly and I put my hand under this automatic thing and there's nothing in it well no 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 I touched I had pushed it so not only had I touched the door I then pushed this thing and it didn't have anything in it so I double whammied the disgust effect of oh god like everyone who's touched this yeah, was trying yeah, to sanitize yeah. their hand yeah. and they haven't yeah. and it and it really has has had a big impact on me um yeah. you know motivation wise which i found that's, quite, that is, quite that's the planning to be habitual the problem with calling things automatic is that it doesn't give you a process of how you achieve it so yeah that, it's, so it's that, something that i've reflected yeah. on rather than so that if you contrast yeah. when people call this, this other process the automatic process mm. i gave a paper once about um automaticity is not automatic so how do you go on <laughs> yeah so if if you're looking at a reflective process you can think about how to be reflective because you reflect mm. but in order to be automatic you don't automate what you do is you associate and yeah, okay, people are not very good at getting that clear and so our data on COVID are telling you not just uh, that these things have become automatic or habitual I'm not discriminating those two words at this moment um, they're not, uh, it's not just that you need to do that. This is how you do it. This is how to become. And mm. the Strachan-Deutsch model tells you that. It tells you that um, you can acquire a habitual or automatic processes in various ways. But if, if you want to intentionally become automatic, how do you do it? Mm. And what you do, what you've absolutely got to do is make a plan to do something in the same way repeatedly yeah. can i just say that goes back to thorndike's law of exercise that uh, if the if the cats coming out of the puzzle box did things repeatedly it became habitual yeah. yeah that's the law of exercise you do what you've done regularly so our COVID behavior fit with that that uh, your intention leads you to make a plan your plan if conducted often enough leads to the habit and the habit and the plan together 
uh, produce the behaviours. Interesting. Mary, I'm I very theoretical it... in my thinking. I know, I can see. I, I, it's fascinating and I think people will love it. But I, I, you know, I was trying to keep these at 40 minutes. That's not happened, but um, that's okay. Oh, dear. Um, but but what I, I want to ask you just um, one last question, really, um, which is useful to people who are listening. And, and it sort of, um, you know, it, it speaks to your proclivity to, to um, mentor and develop people. So if, if you were speaking to, to people starting out in public health, um, or academia um, and they they wanted to apply behavioral science so they've got that that connection that you, yeah, you've sort yeah. of spoken about a lot today um, what what's your advice to them how do they go about making sure they, they end up applying it not just sort of theorizing it it's just it's two bits but people in public health come with a problem they've got mm -hmm. something they're trying to solve mm-hmm uh, I think that they they come with a problem and engage in a conversation with someone from the behavioral science side and just explore ideas. That's something I quite like doing because if you come with a problem, the problem is usually not formulated in behavioral science ways. Mm. And you can usually help people to formulate it a little bit more in behavioral science ways. And then you can, we're never short of a theory to suggest or a behavior change method. And there are various approaches to making changes. So you've, you've, I think you've worked more with Susan on the behavior change wheel or the people who do intervention mapping. Uh, there are different approaches to all of this. Um, if it's something urgent, you're probably going to be using something more like the map than something more complicated like intervention mapping, mm -hmm. uh, where you don't have much time. And usually somebody in public health <clears throat> is coming with a problem where um, I want to stand up and start a program next week that will do yeah. this and that. I, I, yeah. We don't have time to do this and that. So um, I, I think that um, in, engage, but there's also the who you engage with. And I, I would be looking for someone who's done a, a public health intervention from a behavioral science point of view. So somebody like Wendy Maltinsky, who's done the work with the, the diabetes practitioners, mm -hmm. Some, obviously something like Susan, but uh, she's not going to be able to drop everything and do things. Um, I'll work together with them. Uh, don't uh, don't um, the collaborations are much more productive than telling people what to do and sending them away to do it. Yeah. Uh, the other possibility, obviously, is to do some kind of um, if you come with your problem and then do some kind of degree that you work through your problem as part of your degree. I think that's mm -hmm. what you described your project as. Um, mm -hmm. And then the other side of it is that in health psychology, it's very easy for people to get drawn into clinical projects. Yeah. And there's much more money in clinical work, obviously. There's mm -hmm. much more employment in clinical work. Um, but more if somebody... as well. Sorry? It's more controlled as well in clinical. Yeah, that's true. So that uh, I, I'm very keen that health psychologists in training do public health work. So I've done quite a lot of... Um, helping people through their training in stage two to uh, to do health coaching. So mm -hmm. working with, with people, members of the public to enable them to achieve their behavior change goals. Right, I don't know. Right. There are different formats of health coaching, but we work closely with public health there to develop that. That's been quite good. And there's a lot of health psychologists who come through that. So Stefan Dombrowski, uh, Elaine, Eleanor Boole, uh, Emily Moffat, somebody else. They've all worked through that program, and I think it's taught them how to work with practitioners. I think working alongside people with mutual respect is the big thing. 
yeah 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 well i think that's a, a good sort of um mantra for for all work it's just do, do you think it has the kudos and respect in public health that it requires for that for that what you're talking about there so working working respectfully and, and having due appreciation for the, the value of it i i don't think one tries to convert the whole of public health there are people in public health who, are, who find these things useful and it's finding them. In my experience, they're often the, the sort of top-ranking people. So I had a very um, formative experience when I was on the what's now Cancer Research UK committee. Mm. And I, I'd been saying about grants that they weren't using the best current theory. And Gordon McVie, who was the head of the Cancer Research campaign at that time, said, I want you to give us a 15-minute talk on this at the next meeting. I thought, you must be mad. Who wants to know about psychological theory? So I he signed up and I he said, I'm not giving you 15 minutes. I'm giving you 10 minutes because I don't think you could cope with more. Than, I don't think you'd be interested for more than that. And it was back in the days when we had overhead projector sheets. Oh, really? And at the end of my talk, the, what, the, the top uh, breast cancer surgeon of the time, I can't remember his name, said that was the most interesting thing he'd heard in years. And Gordon McPhee said, can I have your overheads to take to my meeting? And that was when I realized that these really top of their profession people could see where the gap was. And they taught me such a lot by their response to my talk that if people are at the top of everything they're doing, they'll have the confidence to take in what you're doing. So to translate that into um if someone was starting out it's actually to find places where you can see good quality yeah yeah um like where, to, where the teams are popping up and they've got never you know, work with people who are poorer in their own discipline than you are in yours that's good advice well you know i've worked so i i, rem I ran this in a project in the 1980s where we did it all proper but i couldn't persuade the psychiatrist to do the proper interview and that meant it could never be published in a proper psychiatry journal. Right, right. Uh, that was on bed blocking in the Royal Free. I've worked on all sorts of things. It does sound, yeah. Well, I think we could have done a couple of shows here, Mary, to be honest. Um, so, so if I move us on now to um, to um, close, where can people get hold of you, uh, Mary? Are you on Twitter, LinkedIn? I'm, yes, but I'm not very responsive on any of these things. On Twitter, I'm Mary Johnston X. Uh, my email is m.johnston at abdn.ac.uk. I respond more to uh, email than the other things. I'm not good at keeping many systems going simultaneously. No, well, you're, you're emeritus, so you can do whatever you want. If you exactly. want to do that, you can do it. If you don't, you don't. Um, but, but Mary, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I mean, it's literally been, um, a, a, well, it's been a joy to talk to you, and it's literally been what... Uh, something that people have been saying to me you must get Mary Johnson on you must get Mary Johnson on and, and um, I'm glad we finally got to to uh, record it um, I'll have to do some cutting of this one I yes. to get it in time but that's fine because there's such a lot of stuff here um, and so yeah I just wanted to say thank you and I, I will let you get back you're, to you're your, very to your generous too and at some time somebody should do the same interview for you because you were hinting at the things you do and that sounds really interesting too 
I would well I should interview myself I might I might just write myself some questions and do a little interview <laughs> actually that actually, to be honest that joke side that actually has been uh, suggested um in the BSPHN uh, committee yeah. they said that yeah. we should reverse it and do one so I would be more than up for it so th let's do a test if anyone from the BSPHN actually listens to the show this will be a good test of how many people on the committee are listening um so I'm up for it anyone on the committee who wants to do it and let's see if they answer that question <laughs> and that'll, that'll be a good test because I think uh, interviewing somebody who's actually out there doing it and making it work is really of value because there's a kind of uh, there's a public health people there's behavioral science people and then there's people who translate it at different levels along the line and they're mm. absolutely crucial yeah I I, I mean I love it I, I'm not I've not got the PhD in it. I've nearly yeah. done them several actually but I, I just haven't really got part the of me envies what mm. you're doing because you're actually out there making it happen. It's great fun. Well, we come, you can come and be part of it. You, know, you don't have to envy it. You can come and be part of it. Um, what, if you, what if you're 80 people that you're already overwhelmed oh, by? God. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no. Well, that's very much, to be honest, that's very much my, my partner Helen's job. Uh, the, that, the operations is very much her. I'm more strategic, uh, theory, all that type of stuff. So, um, so what's, yeah. your, what's your setup called? Oh, it's Busybodies is our, our organisation uh, name and we we're... and are you a, are you an independent organization yeah yeah um it, we just started as a as a program um with some funding 15 years ago um i wrote you know uh, busy bodies as a originally as a residential family weight management program and um then quickly changed that when i was doing my masters and i, I started studying psychology alongside sociology which i hated and then eventually yeah. um sociology became a massive passion of mine at the time because my background was in physiology and and I realized quite quickly that what you know about physiology it matters almost not a jot when you're working with um, families to try and change their behaviors so yeah. telling them what physiological processes are going on or about weight gain about weight loss even makes no difference whatsoever to them um, but understanding their social context understanding yeah. that the reason they couldn't turn up because their dog was just been sick on the carpet and that you know or that they're yeah. in a relationship that's quite destructive or or whatever was a real driver and so we, we started looking into sociological concepts particularly um habitus by pierre bourdieu which was um that literally kept me awake for days whilst i rewrote everything i'd written for, for busy bodies and, and habitus is more than the behavior it's the whole context in which yeah, it happens isn't it exactly. yeah. and, and it's also got a, a um a, a, a an overt and a, a covert element to it as well so yeah. you can you can see all of the the influences and all that type of stuff of habitus but there's also lots of really subtextual and subconscious stuff that's going on there as well and stuff you know and, and also things that are um uh, um, environmental um, oh, yeah. and that you don't even think about you, you know you, you you don't even you don't even recognize that you're restricted in the in these ways in many often yeah, very often because yeah. of the social influences and the physical sort of environment you find yourself and, I, and I've, I've written a book that I've, I've not quite finished but nearly um, about this experience from my own perspective in, growing up in Luton and, and like you know going to university and, and all my all these moments of realization where yeah. you sort of you you it punctuates your your existence and you think 
oh god there's this whole thing over here that i didn't even realize existed and then yeah. and then do you can you move into it or are you too constrained to move into it and stuff and it's the same for families you know and and for for adults that we work with a lot of them aren't even aware of the fact that there is this potential to be different um and so it's about gently punctuating some of that stuff and offering them um the scope to be able to sort of build what we call pillars these sort of these yeah. um uh functional you know uh, uh environmental s social um whatever they are these elements to try and build a, a a structural framework so that they can actually make change that works we call it structural resilience um so they can make change that is actually likely to work in the long term rather yeah. than just saying listen to me for 12 weeks try really hard um to, so to be motivated about, about talking about this thing about persuading people they can be different that was a big breakthrough of cbt was persuading people that it was possible to think in a different way and it was not dysfunctional and that mm. you could choose how you thought. Yeah, Whereas there's an element of that. People up until then had thought that your thoughts were driven rather mm. than directed. Yeah. Sorry if I have not discriminated that properly, but I, th I think that's a, a, such a breakthrough if you can persuade people and you, you do things like... Um, do you say the glass is half full or do you say the glass is half empty? It's not a different way of describing the truth, but one makes you more positive than the other. Uh, yeah. And just yeah. showing people that change is possible. And, and framing, you know, uh, yeah. and, and that's, that's why I liked positive psychology as well. Not because it's positive psychology, but because it is a different way of thinking about behavior. And there was, there was interesting, um, you know seligman did a lot of interesting stuff but so did there was a, a more popular science sort of version of of that by a guy called sean acor that really influenced me early on which was um, the happiness advantage and it was about the difference between people thinking that the journey they were on was to be happy versus people who thought the journey being happy on the journey was part of the i, I haven't described that very well it's on butchered it actually but you know it was it was about people's whether people felt that they were um that happiness was a destination or that happiness was part of the journey as it were and, and that, that, that the evidence all suggested that happy people were happy people throughout the journey and and, in, and ongoing but people who thought happiness was a destination rarely got there because yeah. um they were too focused on what they didn't have there's no deficit means model no, no and, and, and they had a deficit model of i yeah. haven't got this yeah. and i want yeah. I want that type thing. So, Inter interesting enough, the whole uh, area of behaviour change, if you get talking to the, um, the advertising industry, the interesting thing about the advertising industry is they're never trying to stop you doing anything. They're no. always trying to make you do so. So they have a much nicer kind of psychology because they're all to do yeah. with making you feel happy about this, associating it with pleasure, uh, and there's no sort of, you shouldn't do that. There's nothing mm. like that about them. Uh, no, 100%. That, but I actually think they this, that's how we should all be so that um, okay smoking is a bit dodgy but all of the other things you can usually talk about a behavior you're increasing rather than a behavior you're reducing and there's there's two great examples of that I, I had a guy on the show called Adam Ferrier who's a, who's a consumer psychologist he runs a, a marketing agency called Thinkabell really award-winning excellent excellent agency um, but he had his background in I mean, not dissimilar to yours in, in well, in deviant behavior in, in prison systems and all that type of stuff as a psychologist. Um, and he, he like, like me, is obsessed with marketing. Obviously, he is. Um, and we're just sort of, you know, saying marketing has got it right. 
whether you can be snobby about you know un, you need to be theory driven prospectively but i don't believe that i think you can you can look at what works and then go retrospectively and say well why did it work and try and understand that but marketing's got it right so we should be looking at marketers and saying well how, what are you doing and how have you got it right and why aren't we applying that in health in the same way well because we're too purist and we try and do things in this really and if you take that way for me. further uh, how do people market their academic research so when you're talking about twitter some people, like Susan, is fantastic at marketing mm. her research, and I sort of tiddle along with her, but I don't effectively market the other things I do. No. Uh, and they might be of equal value to people out there, mm. but I just, I don't have the skill, and I don't have other people that work with me on it, because Susan is absolutely on it. She's the, the prime marketer of research. For sure, she's brilliant at that. Um, and another another great book that describes this process from the, um, the he's a director, if not the CEO of um, Ogilvy Consulting, is Rory Sutherland's book Alchemy, which is a, a an excellent book to listen to or if you listen to books or read. But it is it's brilliant anyway. But that's where that idea of not being snobby about where good ideas come from. Some good ideas we don't understand why they're good ideas; they just are. Yeah. Um, and we should we should not be snobby about the fact that that exists and that exists in marketing in a big way and it exists in behavior and we just need, we need to try and catch up and try and understand that stuff interestingly all the rewards in academia have come from the, the snobby end of things yes and, and yeah. interestingly the, the ref is moving it because by having impact statements mm. and that's been one of the interesting things that um when impact statements came in the people who were quick to respond to all of that where of course the best universities mm -hmm. and the less good universities are still trying to be snobby about research rather than yeah. impact uh, it's something that people talk about a lot on the show and in fact one of the first guests we had was um professor chris armitage from manchester uh -huh. and he he was um i think he was at leeds and someone from one of the well what he perceived to be a more prestigious university had, had um, accosted him one day early in his career and he said oh yeah I'm, I'm doing psychology at Leeds and he went hmm he said he looked down his nose pulled his glasses down rather applied isn't it <laughs> and I was like well yeah that's snobbery in it's in it's great because well, I, I would see that as a great thing that it's applied but and it's how we respond there. to that yeah yeah so yeah isn't it great yeah but, but good quality too I would have added that yeah. So, that's, so those are my two criteria. You, you, the Royal Society of Edinburgh, is, uh, its motto is um, uh, searching for useful knowledge. Yeah, I think I think the adding of the ref thing, I mean, I'm not an academic, so I'm only per on the periphery of seeing all that and people talking yeah. to me about it, but it is a great thing. But I, I have heard that there's still a, a, a heavier weighting towards, you know, impact in journals and... and publishing but listen it's, to it's yourself a step in the right direction yeah that's that's the correct response yeah, yeah. it's a step in the right direction so that i, I think that uh, i think it will be impossible for a place to get a really top-notch um rating without having both yeah um, Mary, I actually have to go to another meeting, but let, know, let me, I I, what I need to do is just cap the show off because <laughs> a, a lot of that I won't include at the end. But exactly, I, I, yeah. I, um, I, I, if I can just say thanks again and you say, great, thanks, see you later, yeah. then that will cap the show off and then I'll do all the rest afterwards and whatever. So, um, Mary, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciated talking to you today and I think that the listeners will really, really like hearing your, your journey and uh, heeding your advice. So thank you very much. I'll let you get back to your day. 
my pleasure. You, you conduct a really nice interview and uh, sometime I need to learn more about you. Thank you. <laughs> thanks. Thanks, Mary. Okay, thank you so much to uh, Mary. I knew it was going to be long when I started talking to her and I did leave the ending on there, which is a little bit geeky, but I just wanted you to sort of hear the extent to which we sort of went back and forth. And that was already cut down, really, that option, but that, that, that version of the show. But I just wanted to show how dorky we can get when we're recording it, uh, most of which is often cut out. Dr. T, any last thoughts on the show? Uh, I, I found I found th- these sort of conversations fascinating, and, and the one thing I will say is that I, I I truly believe that two geeks are better than one. So I'm very committed to to bumping up the geekiness level uh, in a good way. Uh, I I found it very interesting what what Mary was talking about, um, not starting with a problem when thinking about psychology mm-hmm. and behavior mm-hmm. science, mm-hmm. and starting with reflections and exploring ideas. Yeah, for sure. And she shared a very interesting point on. Uh, the fact that behavior science is not formulated in in a problematic way or problems not being formulated in the behavior science way. So it's very important to think about different nuances of reflecting and exploring ideas before focusing on the problem. So I think that's a very interesting point there. For sure. And I actually have been in contact with Mary since because I think I wanted to just keep the conversation going on supporting my own journey since she's such a good mentor for people. I thought, well, why not? Why not get some of that myself? <laughs> so uh, I think that yeah. something that I'm very interesting though, and, and I'm very glad and excited to be on the show is that I've, I've now going to have the opportunity of, of, to trap these people in, in a room with me so I can <laughs> yeah. ask them all sorts of questions. Yeah, that is fun. Um, great. Thank you, Tiago. And also thank you again to uh, Mary Johnston uh, for joining me. This, this show, I should say, is created on behalf of the Behavioural Science and Public Health Network, um, which has been amazing in, in sort of making suggestions for the next round of, of um, interviews that we'll be doing next year. And I think it's worth making uh, an announcement about a few things that they've got coming up, including a, a brand new website. So if you go to bsphn.org.uk, you can see the, the brand new website. They are now a charitable organisation as well, so they recently became a, a charity. Uh, which is big news and it took a lot of work for that. They've also got a um, their, their an- annual conference coming up in February, which I highly recommend that you sign up for right now. There is an early bird um, period that you can go and sign up. It is on the 22nd of February, 2023, and it's taking place at your alma mater, actually, um, Tiago, at Aston University in Birmingham. Exciting times. Yes, it is, yeah. And the confirmed keynote speakers are Professor Richard Wilkinson, Dr. Rochelle Burgess, Professor Richard Amelot and Professor Tushna Vandravala. And you can also, if you go onto the website at the moment, submit a poster to go along to that as well. So if you're interested in talking about any of your work that you've got going on uh, in public health, in um, behavioral science generally, you can submit a poster on the website as well. So thank you very much for your continued support in producing the show uh, BSPHN and thank you to Mary Johnston and uh, we'll, we'll be back next month with Rachel Carey, which is another great show. And then after that, in 2023, we will be launching our new format of uh, Dr. Tiago Motella and myself. So thank you very much, everybody. Have a great Christmas and we will be with you again in the new year. Thank you, everyone. Have a lovely Christmas.